Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host um, in San Diego, California, and really excited to be diving into this um, classic animated film from Japan, man. And today's film was actually chosen by two of our patrons, John Tortorello and Michael Gulick. You know, that's what you can do here on The Cinephiles is become a patron of The Cinephiles. If you head over to patreon.com slash The Cinephiles, one of the perks you get for the time being is to select a movie that we discuss and talk about on the show. But of course, we've got new things going on and new um, tiers that will be coming here on the Patreon as well. So head on over to the patreon.com slash uh, the cinephiles to see the multiple tiers and ones that work for you all but many new perks coming many new things that we're doing for you all and this is just one that we're kind of making sure we continue and finish out the year doing is uh picking these patreon picks for our uh higher level patrons yeah well and i'm really glad that we got this one because it's yeah. taking us to a, a kind of movie that we haven't done before mm-hmm. and i'm very curious not just when did you come to spirit away but when did you come to the weird the weird world of studio ghibli and miyazaki I think it was um, doing the testing. Remember, uh, you know, we used Same. to DVD testing. That was me yeah. too, yeah. Yeah, I think it was uh, Princess Mononoke is the one that I think we worked on. And then I got into the Ghibli stuff and a lot of people were telling me how much they enjoyed it. I'd read a bunch of articles about it and then found my way to Spirited Away, which I think I actually saw in the theater, mm. I think, in... in um, in LA with the guys, I think. And then I remember seeing Howl's Moving Castle with the guys. So certainly going to see these animated films at the time were something that we were doing as a group a little bit. So I think I remember seeing it with Vogel and Shannon and other people there. I might've been there. I think there's a strong, yeah, I think there's, cause I, I think I saw it in the theater too. I can't, Mm -hmm. it's so funny. This movie is hard to get my head around, and maybe that's why it's hard to get my head around exactly where I saw it the first time. <laughs> Miyazaki for me is the same. I I worked on the Howl's Moving Castle DVDs, oh, yeah, right and so that and it's so and 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 you know this from doing this weird job is that sometimes you're navigating the menus before you watch the movie. Yeah, yeah. So I yeah. think I had navigated through the menus a dozen times before I actually sat down to watch the film, yeah. and was just. I don't know. I think I've spent 20 years trying to f- understand how I feel about these films. Yeah. And I'll tell you what was really interesting about Spirited Away was watching it again with our son mm-hmm. was really great because it was just like, oh, here's a whole new experience. And 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 as much as any movies we've ever discussed, these to me are like what we said many times is every time you come to it, you're coming to it from a different place. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And it's very much its own Miyazaki is very much an auteur in terms of, you know, in the world of animation, he is very clear about what he's creating, very clear about his vision for these things. And they are full of mystical, wonderful, so beautifully designed, unsettling horror elements, all of it running through here that I think is just fascinating that he finds a way to mix them to the point that people who watch these films really do fall in love with them, Steve. And, and, uh, look back on them as some of their favorite films in their collection, which I think is really fascinating. What, what, what's interesting to me, I remember when we did, this is going to be a weird comparison, but when we did uh-huh. 2001 A Space Odyssey, yeah. and at the time I was saying that this is the most like true just art house film that we had done on the cinephiles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's weird about Miyazaki is like, are they children's adventures with great creatures and great heroes and adventurous moments and all that? Totally, totally they are. Uh-huh. 
but they're also art house films, you know, hundred percent where you're just like, well, what is the meaning of this? And I, it's, I did something I rarely do, which is I went and looked at other people's interpretations of Mm. the film Mm -hmm. and they are all over the place. There are socioeconomic interpretations. There are spiritual interpretations. Mm -hmm. There are psychological interpretations. There's like, well, this creature represents the ego and this is the it, or this is the, and it's like, they're all, and that's, Again, kind of the joy of these movies is yeah. you can enjoy them as a fun kid animated film. You can enjoy them for the comedy. You can enjoy them for the beauty of them. And you could get real deep yeah. in what they're all about. It's almost like a one-man Pixar for uh, the Japanese people in their style of animation, for sure. Yeah, and, and Absolutely. And he is clearly, you know, we talked about this term in auteur. Mm. This guy fits the term. Oh, I yeah. mean, exactly. Miyazaki, This he's created his whole his own thing entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background. He's born in Tokyo in 1941. So the world that he grew up in is the wrecked world of Japan right yeah. after World War II. That's that's his first, and you can see those sort of images. Um, he His first film is Castle of Cag... I'm going to mess up some of the pronunciation, but Castle of Cagliostro mm-hmm. is his first film. He founds the Studio Ghibli in 85. Yeah, and after that, it's just one after another. These interesting films like Castle in the Sky, My Neighbor Totoro, Kiki's Delivery Service. I mean, these are all really interesting films. Yeah, and he is. I watched a couple of documentaries on him. Mm. He is an intense, complicated, yeah. driven, disciplined, old-fashioned, yeah. particular kind of person. He he works. 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day on the dot, like very, very, he has many, many rituals. I love one of the things watching him, by the way, is he's always wearing like a white apron yeah. and always smoking a cigarette. He has a very specific look. He has a very stripped down kind of style. Yeah. And he basically, and this is just so strange to me, they don't work off a script. Yeah. What they do is that he starts drawing and he just starts drawing storyboards Nobody knows where he's going. He doesn't know where he's going. And then as the storyboards start to come together, everybody starts working on them. And they could be working in a scene in the middle, a scene near the end. Mm -hmm. And nobody has any idea how the whole film fits together at all. (laughs) And he has – it's it's funny. Someone said that he basically – he hires a whole bunch of young people on all these projects that he is supposed to be mentoring, which he kind of is. Yeah. But he also, someone described it as basically he's a vampire sucking up all their energy, Jesus. all their young energy for him to keep going. Yeah. Maybe he's in the movie. Maybe he's Kamazi in the movie with all those little uh, helpers uh, putting the coal in the in the thing. And he's the guy that's kind of running them all with the multiple I, hands. I think that's a perfectly reasonable interpretation. <laughs> um so uh, this this particular movie, it starts with a young girl who was the daughter of a friend mm-hmm. who came to Miyazaki's house in the summer, and they used to stay with him during summers. And she was super free-spirited, but he worried about what the world was going to do to her. Mm. How it's good, because that's a big influence in his films is how does the world break or warp people yeah. and, that start off innocent and pure? And he studied her very carefully as he studies everything in the natural world. He is, a, I think, first and foremost, he's an observer. Um, and I have to say, watching the behind the scenes footage of the making of this movies, 
stressed me out maybe more than any behind the scenes footage I've ever seen. <laughs> They're constantly behind. People don't know what's going on. He's drawing like he sits drawing and you can see his foot bouncing from just the nervous energy that's going on. That's all and right. it's not it's not that I describe him as like a Steve Jobs type who's super intense and but he is a demanding guy. Well, it's like, woo, isn't it? I mean, John Ford, all the great directors, yep. you know, a lot of them, not saying everyone, but certainly a lot of them, especially old school guys, have that kind of um, work ethic, have that kind of drive, have that kind of roughness and gruffness to them. Uh, and that's and it doesn't necessarily come out in their work. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there are harder edges. There are hard edges in a lot of Miyazaki's work for sure. But like um, – uh, in the but he's driven by a certain thing to put this stuff together, and certainly, the physical movements, the physical anticipation, all of that stuff is connected to the artistry he feels uh, controlling him, or or uh, that he feels called to put to uh, animation. So we've seen that, and you know, Wu was the same way, right? Everybody talks about how Wu was demanding and always smoking a cigarette and writing all the time and being on top of people and all of that. So there's a desire to get something right. Um, and he's an old school guy. So, yeah. You, you know what I think it, it is, is that I think, and I, I'm saying I'm guilty of this, is that we associate the mood or the tone of the art that they created sure. with the mood or the tone of the people that create it. And that's not necessarily true. No. Like, are these movies for kids and aren't they filled with wonder and about, about, you know, compassion and gentleness and all these things? Yes, they are. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's how the movie got made. No, right. Exactly. No, 100%. Yeah. Um, th there's this one exchange uh, where, you know, uh, one of the animators is bringing his work for approval to Miyazaki. And he says to him, he the first thing he says is, looks at the work, obviously disappointed, and says, do you live without thinking? That's the first thing he says. He Then it goes, fix it now or you're out. Wow. And then when the guy gets a little upset, he's like, go ahead, quit. Wow. Yeah. No, it's, he's tough. That's and you tough, could... Man. And you could feel, and I'm sure you've been around this kind of situation. Sure. You could feel with the group of people that he's working with, the the admiration bordering on awe of right. the guy, along with the total fear of disappointing him and mm -hmm. not living up to expectations. Right. Um, and on this movie, they are way behind schedule. Mm -hmm. It sounds like all his movies are way behind schedule. <laughs> so they they double their animation staff. They hire 40 more illustrators. Wow. They increased the drawing rate by four times, and now they start working seven days a week. And that thing I said about him leaving at nine o'clock at night, that ceases to be true. They end up staying there. They're, not only is he staying till 11, 12, one in the morning, but there are people that are just working round the clock. I like one of the things they have a tradition at the studio is on late nights, they take turns cooking a, a, like a meal, like an 11 o'clock meal for everybody, right, so right. There's, including Miyazaki. So he's there making ramen for everybody and. A couple other interesting things before we jump into the movie. Yeah. In most animation in the U.S., they record the voices first and then the, create the voice track and then they animate based on that. Right. That's not how this is done. This is done where everything is drawn and they bring in the voice actors at the very end to lip sync their characters that are already drawn. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that well actually, that makes sense, right? Because they start off, oh, well, actually, no, I guess not. No, that's, it is reverse. Yeah. I mean, I've done that. Yeah, as a recurring uh, doing voiceover stuff, they've already built the character, right? But it's right. when you're not, they, then they totally like construct the look of it. 
Interesting. Okay. Well, I think part of it is that there's no script. You know, he's creating it through storyboards. Yeah. Yeah. I think another part of this also might be, Steve, like you said, he's very much, he very much has a vision for what he wants it to be. And he's not going to be influenced by the look of another actor playing the role. He's going to create the 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 look of the character based on what he sees and what he wants working with the animator. So he'll be damned if some actor is going to come in and influence how he constructs the look of a character. I think that's a great point. Well, and it's also how he constructs the performance. Right. Because normally, like you got Robin Williams playing the genie, you're letting him inspire what the art is doing. That's not what this is. You know, Miyazaki and Robin Williams working together on every (laughs) film, please. I don't think it'd go well. Because <laughs> it's funny watching the when they did the voice recordings and watching yeah. the behind the scenes. First of all, what's really weird is they recorded it in a screening room, mm-hmm. so there's no there's no glassed off booth for the actor. So if Miyazaki laughed right. at the performance, he actually ruins the take, right? Because they're all in the same room, which is really bizarre. That but bizarre, yeah. But but he's trying to get the actors to become the character that he's already created in his mind, right? Right. You know what I mean? And watching his was again. He's difficult, he's disciplined, he's peculiar. Yeah. And watching his excitement at making movies is kind of amazing. Yeah. You know? Uh he's he his quote was, We never thought our films would be popular. We just made what we wanted. How much of that do you actually believe, man? Like I love when creators say that, and it's not true. Like I never believe it. And look, I know there are probably some Miyazaki people who are gonna be upset at me saying that, but I don't think it's true. Uh, if you're driven and passionate to create something, it's because you feel called to do it. And so you want it to be consumed by as many people as possible because you want them to share in what you've built and what you've created. So I would be surprised if what he said actually holds true. You know, I So there, there are two statements here, and I think one of them is true, and I think <laughs> one of them is, bu- is bullshit, right. but I do think there's an important thing here. Statement okay. one, I never thought our films would be popular. Not, you know, he, of course he wanted his films to be popular. Right. Everyone wants their films to be popular. Of course, yeah. We just made what we wanted, I think, is true. Right, and, sure. And I think, I think the, 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 to, to split the point down a little bit more is right. that they didn't sacrifice what they wanted to make in order to be popular. Yeah, that's probably a better clarification of that comment. Yeah, for sure. You know, because, I mean, we want the cinephiles to be popular. Sure. Uh, but we're, but we're not going to make a show that we don't want to make. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's one more person I want to, I want to bring in just at the beginning, which is uh-huh. that we have to talk about John Lasseter because the yeah. reason that this came to the U S in the way that it did is because Lasseter is a huge fan of this guy's work. Yeah. Apparently it was very common in Pixar when they were stuck for Lasseter to just let's watch some Miyazaki. And well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Miyazaki yeah. influencing Pixar. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so when he brought it to Disney, they went big time on how they did this. And mm. They brought in an A-list screenwriter to write the, the new screenplay. Yeah. And then they brought in A-list voice actors like Suzanne Plachette and Lauren Holly and David Ogden Stiers, John Ratz- Ratzenberger yeah. to come in and do the voices. What's weird about it because um, I know you've done some dubbing from stuff in other languages. Yeah, yeah. You speak Spanish. Yes. None of these people speak Japanese. Right. Right. So they're not listening to the performance or the in it, or the way that this character does it. They're reading a script that was written in English yeah. and just performing it as if it's theirs. Yeah. Yeah. 
So on the one hand, you have a really, really well-produced audio track, a dub track in English. And on the other hand, it pro- might be farther away from the Japanese version. Yeah, good point. And, and so what you are going to hear, I would say mostly through this, although we will cut to the film, we're going to cut to the Japanese version. Yes. You know, because that's the original intention. Yeah. Uh, speaking okay. of which, shall we get into this movie? Yeah, let's do it. Jihiro. Jihiro. Mosudayo. So we start off looking at flowers and a card that says, I'll miss you, Chihiro, your best friend, Rumi. And we see a little girl on the back seat of a very crowded car. And they, it is obvious that they're, she's with her family and they are moving away and she is not happy about it. And I had a full parenting epiphany at this moment. Ooh. She says, mom, my flowers are dying. Ah! And mom says, I told you not to smother them like that. Here's my epiphany. Okay. This is what happens all the time in your parenting. Okay. Your kid is upset about a thing. And on the one hand, you you want to honor the fact that they're upset about the thing. Right. And on the other hand, they screwed up and did a thing that they shouldn't have done. And now they're dealing with the consequences of their own actions. So as a parent, you have a built-in I told you so. This is why you should have done. You should have put them in water. You shouldn't have crushed them. You shouldn't be. You shouldn't be sad about moving this new town. You should think of this as a new adventure. And this is why parenting is always impossible. <laughs> you know what I mean? What does that witch say in uh, End of the Woods? This is the world. I don't know. Children should listen. Yeah. yeah. This is. Yeah. Exactly. It's always the the, the cycle. Yeah. Well, and, and, and because you're criticizing them, you're not actually helping them feel better about the thing. Yeah, yeah. But if you're too indulgent and don't actually teach them how to properly deal with flowers or moves or things like that, then yeah, yeah. they don't grow. But we see the car driving up the hill. And one thing that's important is that while this is a Japanese film, the car they're driving is an Audi. Mm-hmm. And that dad is dressed in Western clothes. Yeah. They're very Western. Why do you think... Miyazaki goes out of his way to do that. Yeah, this is something that I did some research on as well. And, and um, you know, for me, I didn't think twice about it when I watched it because I'd seen, you know, Japanese people in Western clothes. Sure. was not something, and, and across the world, by the way, it, it wasn't just Japanese yeah. people, but people. So uh, to me, I didn't think twice about it. But as I was doing more and more research for this uh, film, because just like, you, well, I don't, I don't speak for you, Steve, but for me, the film is a little bit of a harder entry for me. Um, there's uh, it, there's so much that is fantastical and magical, but there's also just some stuff that for me doesn't 100% connect. So I had to kind of really bear down and watch this one and then do some some reading on this. And I know that one of the things that uh, Miyazaki spoke about in interview, interviews is that he wanted to kind of turn the um, spotlight on the fact that uh, the Japanese culture had kind of uh, was moving away from its past or was back into a place where it was forgetting its origins and it was, uh, you know, giving into America, giving into Western influences. And you see here with the dad, the dad's heavier, the dad has the Western polo on, they're driving an Audi. So, in a way, he was uh, the film is a symbol of how we need to really appreciate our origins and not get so consumed by Western consumerism, Western greed, these characteristics um, that are there. So I think that's a certainly a very subtle nod to that when you're watching the movie, because not everyone's going to catch it. Uh, of all the themes I sort of read about, mm. this was the one that stood out to me the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe it's because I am Western and I am part of the American culture, but like that and, you've got and a also polos, yeah, 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 sure, exactly. And also watching Miyazaki and how his 
the way he lives is so traditionally Japanese. Yes. And he so much cares about nature, not just in his films, but in his personal life yeah. and kind of the old ways. This really, really stood out to me. Yeah. Um, we end up on a dirt road because dad has taken a, l- a wrong turn. And like all good dads, he just won't ask for directions. And he's just going to keep going up what is so obviously the wrong way to go. Yeah. Um, and by the way, the dad in this this character is actually based on this little girl's real dad. Oh, wow. Including the fact that that real dad would get lost and not to ask for directions. And also one of the things Miyazaki observed, I think, in these summers where they were visiting was watching this dad eat. Oh. And all oh, of that is in this character. Boy, Miyazaki, easy now. Okay. No, he's he is not a, a sweetheart. <laughs> you know, he's a difficult guy. Bit of a rough guy. All right. Um, and uh as we're driving up, we start to see these stones kind of coming up out of the ground and these sort of shrines and these are you know kami which are the japanese spirits this is central to Mm. older traditional japanese uh mythology uh and shinto and things that miyazaki's always been fascinated about yeah they keep driving and and uh the girl's bouncing around in the back and mom is getting upset and he goes oh i've got four-wheel drive (laughs) typical dad move but also isn't this symbolic of Western consumerism riding over nature, Japanese nature, totally. right? crushing it, uh, putting it under its tires, that kind of thing. You know, an imported car stepping on the or running over the nature and vegetation and the plant life that that is originally from that land. So there's a symbolism even in that. Yeah. Well, and it's just I'm not going to stop and appreciate any of this i'm just right. barreling through because i yeah, got right so fast yeah you're right yeah um and then they stop in front of this dark tunnel in this building and they go out to look at it and he says and again this is why miyazaki to me there's just always something to dig into because mm-hmm. he goes hold on the building it's fake it's stones are just made out of plaster yeah so on the one hand it, we're we're in the old traditional kind of world yeah. not the modern world on the other hand that world is fake Right. You know, which is really strange. And they want to go into the tunnel and Chihiro doesn't want to go in. Yeah. And, and you know, this is a, this is a perfect parent move that they do to a kid. I want you to come along with me. You don't want to go fine. I'll leave you alone. Knowing yeah. the kid is going to get scared. Yeah. And then you're going to get them to do what you want them to do in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what happens. And she runs and catches up to them and they end up going through this dark tunnel towards the light. Again, the shots are all beautiful and they go into this empty room with benches and we hear the distant sounds of a train. It's like, Oh, we're in some kind of train station. Hmm. And then they step out into the light on a beautiful green Hill. And I love the way the wind moves across the grass like waves. Yeah. And this is one of the things that Miyazaki says over and over again is the importance of observing everything and in particular the natural world. Mm. And he's, and he said something that I thought was really interesting. I'm not going to quote it exactly right, but it was basically, you can't just observe, you have to observe and imagine at the same time. Mm. And I thought that was, that's like a great lesson for any artist, I think. Yes. Yes. And they come up on these weird buildings and dad goes, oh, this is an abandoned theme park. They built these everywhere in the early 90s. Then the economy went bad and they all went bankrupt. Yeah. Again, this is why that that economic Western culture yeah. consumerism yeah. theme really hits me, hits home with me a lot is because yeah. of things like this. 
it's funny. I was noticing the, you know, Miyazaki takes time to show you the clouds and the weather mm-hmm. and the wind. And I suddenly went, he might be the best director filmmaker to show weather since Kurosawa. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, because certainly when you, when you're watching it, he is making it clear to you to build out the environment that you're living in. And I think that's why his film sometimes I don't want to say transcend animation because that implies somehow animation is lower and can be transcended. It's more a matter of that he makes it a very visceral experience to watch his animated. Exactly. You know, and you're, you're go- he is going to flesh out this world for you as if you're watching a live action film. And so you're going to have that kind of mixture of both when you're watching a movie of his because he is going to make it feel very lived in for you. And uh, bring it to life for you in ways that a few animator, a few animated films can do. Totally, totally. So we're walking through these buildings, and they're sort of these facades with different architectural styles. And Mm -hmm. this is based on, which sounds really cool, by the way. There is an open air architectural museum in Tokyo, which just has a whole bunch of different building styles that you can walk through. It's outdoors, of different architecture and it's one of Miyazaki's favorite places to go he would bring his team there regularly to walk through and he said that he loved going at twilight because it was filled with sorrow oh interesting yeah okay I like it well and that reminded me too of his descriptions of the first buildings he can remember which is the wrecked buildings after world war ii Mm. Mm. you know and these are facades of buildings or half buildings and that they're filled with sorrow. Yeah. And and I feel that as they're walking through this, quote-unquote, abandoned amusement park. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You feel that sense of trepidation, but also that sense of loss uh, permeating as you walk through these areas. Yeah. And they start to smell something. And Dad is hungry. Yeah. And we're looking around, and there are all these, like, what look like restaurant stalls, but all of them are empty. And then we end up at this place where there is all of this food. Yeah. And there is every single kind of food imaginable and they want to go eat. And mom's hungry too. And they call and there's nobody around. Chihiro is not like in this situation at all. Yeah, she senses something's off. Yeah. Yeah. And they start eating. And I love that they just kind of steal the f- food. Mm. And dad says, Don't worry. You've got daddy. He's got credit cards and cash. Yeah, yeah. Again, this is where that Western consumerism thing is hitting again. Well, I mean, and also the fact that they just start eating and go, oh, we'll pay them after we're done or we'll pay them when they show up. Instead of being patient, instead of being respectful, instead of waiting for someone to show up, they just go ahead and take what they want. And then they'll pay for it later, you know? And so, yeah, another uh, symbol of that as well. The consumerism angle of it, yeah. Totally. And the way way mom eats, I mean, the way both of them eat is Yeah, sure. And, and it was funny, as you're watching her eat, I, again, I have a bunch of Miyazaki quotes. One of the quotes that he has is, movement isn't neutral. It has intent. That's what makes the muscles move. Mm. In other words, you just, there has to be the emotion behind the style of movement, and that tells you how to animate it. Right, right, right. That it's not just, and this is over and over again, when I saw him working with young animators, this is what he was stretching. Like, yeah, that's not how a baby's head moves. That's not how they do this because they want, because you have to understand the character Mm -hmm. and what they're feeling in order to animate them. 
Um, by the way, Chihiro's mom is based on one of the staff members at Ghibli, and uh, she eats uh, with her elbows on the table when she eats, and so that's why Miyazaki animated this character that way. Wow. I didn't know there was an issue, but all right. Oh, you didn't have, a, as a kid, like, get your elbows off the table? No, I, there was never a thing for me when I was growing up. Oh, yeah. Well, I was, I, there, was a, there was a lot of things <laughs> that I don't obey anymore when I, when I was a kid. Of, um, That's hilarious. My, my, my son's table manners would never surpri- survive my grandmother's house. Oh, really? Oh, God, no. Oh, they're, yeah. But your mom's house is okay. No, but there, there was my... Was a little bit of adjustment, you know, generation to generation. Right? Exactly. Yeah. My mom grew up in a very formal environment. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, I grew up, but I mean, when I went to Thanksgiving, I was in a suit and a tie at five years old. Oh man, really? To go oh, yeah. turkey? Oh wow. Okay. Oh yeah. There there were servants. There was you know. Oh wow. Past hors d'oeuvres and no, it was there was a fancy environment that was on my mom's side of the family. It was yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, well and what's so weird is that you know whatever your childhood is, that just seems normal. So that yeah, no, seemed weird point. to me. I didn't know that was weird until I was much older. Yeah, yeah, good point, brother. Good point. And as they start eating, we start to hear little pig noises. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, as I, as I told you, they did all the recording in this screening room, and when they recorded this, they brought in a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> Whoa, what? So the actors are eating chicken while they're recording this sequence. Dude. <laughs> And there's a great moment again behind the scenes there can be really boring and really fun. And watching uh, Miyazaki sneak down the stairs and steal a leg of the fried chicken to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> I love so Chihiro's not digging any of this and she she walks away. Yeah. And then we see this big building, which is the bathhouse. This is going to be the central location of the film. It's yeah. based on a bathhouse from Miyazaki's youth. And she stands on the bridge and she looks down, sees this train way down below coming out of the tunnel. Yeah. I love the train coming at this time because the train doesn't pay dividends until almost near the end of the movie. But you're watching the train constantly be a thing that you're aware of. Like Miyazaki paces the – the every time you see the train, it's just to remind you that it does exist so he can pay it off later in the film. But it, it isn't overwhelming. It's just every once in a while you see that train. And I love that here is the perfect time where it's coming because every time it shows up, it's at a critical moment in her experience here in the spirit world. It's a great point. It's a great point. And there we get our first look at Haku. And he's angry and says, you shouldn't be here. Get out of here now. It's almost night. Leave before it gets dark. What's, What's interesting about Miyazaki is just everything takes on meaning and very little gets explained. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I don't know what that means, but it is scary. Yeah. Um, and it's starting to get dark and she runs and he does something that looks magical. So she has some kind of magical powers. We don't know what. Yeah. And she runs down into the dark street. And now we start to see these, what I would describe as like shadow creatures. And, and yeah. like, there's these things there that because it's getting dark, because this magic is happening, I think they were maybe there and we couldn't see them before. Yeah. You know, uh, and she runs down to mom and dad who are still eating, except now they look huge. Yeah. And dad turns around and he's become a pig. <laughs> and the, you just see the mess, the total mess that they've created eating like pigs. 
Yeah. Um, and this is definitely connected, according to Miyazaki, to the bubble economy of the 80s. You yeah. know, that's when suddenly there was so much money. And and it's funny, too, the description of the abandoned uh, amusement park from the 90s. Yeah. So much money flows in and it just leaves a wreck. Uh, here, here's some another wonderful Miyazaki quote. <laughs> oh, uh, all of humanity's dreams are cursed somehow wanting to be rich and famous screw that that's hopeless yeah yeah i like that comment so much of our current culture is obsessed with being rich and famous and being an influencer and making all that money and doing all the things that they need to do in a desperate attempt to be seen by so many people you know, and so that's such a valid point. And we, people forget, like, there's a whole world out there to experience and enjoy and consume. And you don't have to have your phone turned on the whole time. And I think this is where I fall apart as a quote unquote influencer, because I don't want to record everything I experience. I don't want to take a picture every day. And, and I may eventually have to do that, but I, there's a, I still want to be able to enjoy my world, you know, and have fun within it. And I just feel so many people consume the world as something to use to um, advance themselves. And I think there's a real disconnect that ends up occurring because then you don't appreciate it as an, a separate entity. You see it as a, as a tool that you're using rather than something to really savor and experience. There are, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. There are <laughs> aspects of human personalities and desires yeah. that I really don't get. And I really don't get following an influencer. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't, I don't really for the most part get experiencing things through watching someone else experience them. There's some exceptions to this where I really do get it. But like right. a lot of the stuff that my son watches is just yeah. like watching other people play video games for an hour. Yeah. I don't get it. I, I really, so the idea of the influencer, it's like, particularly because many of these people are without um i will say much real substance or quality so you know, why do i care yeah. about what they're influencing you know yeah, yeah yeah um but maybe we could also just say that steve's old <laughs> <laughs> um well so, let me ask you this why yeah. do you i mean if, do you think miyazaki's being too cruel by making them pigs I mean, the obviously the across the world, the connotation of a pig is something that eats whatever it wants, is rough, is rude, pushes through what it wants, lives in dirt and slop, uh, and cares nothing for uh, anything around it. And look, there are people who have pigs as pets who would be very upset uh, at that um, clear, uh, um, that uh, portrayal, but that's what. Most uh, popular culture has accepted a pig uh, to symbolize. So, yeah. do you think he's being too harsh by turning them into pigs, rather than something else? I, I will. I will put it this way: I think Miyazaki is harsh. Yes, I don't know if he's okay. being. I don't. I think that's his personality. I mean, like he, you know, I just said he thinks all humanity's dreams are cursed. You know, like yeah, 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 yeah. He, he has intense, strong opinions, and the scene that I hadn't thought about until you said it, but that it totally relates to, is Pinocchio turning into the donkey. Yes, you know, right. Like, there's a similar thing here and that is harsh. Like that is, yeah, you know, it is a, it, it is a totally rough thing. Yeah. Um, but I think that's, I mean, you, you know what I'll, I'll say? 
this world that he creates, this is not a forgiving world no, at and, all. And, and that's why I always, people talk about Miyazaki with like this childlike enthusiasm. And I'm like, are you really seeing what's here? Are you, maybe you you know, your childlike enthusiasm is because you do see what's here and you, the way he speaks to um, you know, kids at that age, and you remember being that age, but there is a harshness to his work here that I wonder if people factor into their childlike wonder about his movies. So. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think yeah. there, I mean, there is childlike wonder, but they're harsh and scary. They're, yeah. they're unforgiving for sure. Yeah. Um, and so now she's totally freaked out and she runs towards where she thought she could go home and there's now water there blocking her. Yeah. And then we see this fairy coming across the water. I love the way this is drawn and I love how the world materializes as it gets darker. Mm-hmm. And she tries to wake herself up and she can't wake herself up. And then she starts to fade out and become transparent. Yeah. And we go, oh, this is what Haku was warning her about. And the the fairy lands and these figures come out that it's really just like floating paper faces. Yeah. And again, and I'm sure that experts in Japanese mythology, I'm sure these are references to all sorts of things that I don't understand. Well, certainly Miyazaki said these are references to rituals within the Japanese culture. So certainly honoring those rituals, because as we said earlier, Steve, it's about reclaiming the past of Japanese culture, reclaiming tradition, you know, finding value in that again. And certainly something like what we're seeing here with all these wonderful, wonderful designs and wonderful characters coming in to, to populate and flesh out the world is based on those rituals, I'm sure. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Steve, and as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Well, and as they step onto the land, they start to appear and we see them in red cloaks. And this is, you know, 
the bathhouse is the place for the spiritual cleansing and ritual of the spirit world, yeah, yeah. which is the world that lives behind our world on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, and Haku finds her and she's freaking out and he gives her some food because you have to eat some food or else you'll disappear. Yeah. And I just think of so many rituals where eating like there's the in Greek mythology, if you the the I forget who it is who eats something in Hades yeah. and then has to spend, you know, half the year there. And that's why there's winter and all these like I kept thinking about all these different mythologies that have things like this. I mean, we have them in our world, don't we? Like we just yeah. mentioned your Thanksgiving. I mean, Turkey is just the thing. You gotta have it. You know, mashed potatoes, gotta have the cranberry sauce, right? Uh the roast, you know, or Chris at Christmas roast or things like that. We all have food that's connected to our method even something as simple as eggs for easter you know there's connective tissues there are chocolates for um valentine's day we have those things that connect not quite as ritualistic as you would say like catholicism where you're eating the body of christ with communion but certainly there is food connected to a lot of these big uh events in our worlds every year so she's obviously still scared about her i i I find this whole sequence really scary, I oh, should yeah. say. Yeah, of course. Because we have no idea what's going on. She went immaterial. Her parents have turned into pigs. She doesn't know where we are. There are these crazy creatures like coming in off the ferry. And there's this young guy, Haku, who we think is helping her, I guess. But we don't know who he is. Right. And then her legs don't work. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Well, from the beginning, when we're introduced to her, she's a bit of a brat. You know, she's pouting in the back. She doesn't want to go with her parents through the tunnel, even though she's right, right, in essence. But the way they draw her of the fists down and the foot stopping and this kind of thing, but then running and clinging. And even her mom saying, don't cling, you're going to knock me over. That's also a symbolic nature of, like, someone who needs to let go because they're holding on too tight to their parents. And then when we see what happens to her parents, and then the way her parents are ignoring her while they're eating, which really frustrates her, and so she wanders off and deals and sees all the things that she sees and then comes back and sees her parents. She's freaking out. Then we have all the stuff with Haku. She's freaking out the whole time. So you're seeing a child, right? And yeah. it, it's another part of the symbolism here of, of the film is the child that's about to go through this ritual transitioning into the beginnings of adulthood. It's the entire movie. But you've got to set her up firmly as this kind of impertinent, bratty, childish child who's scared of the whole world and freaks out at everything so that later when she has that really strong confrontation with no face and makes the decisions that she wants to make um we see it as a an arc she has gone on this journey and she has found this kind of inner strength which all of us need to find as we transition from childhood into the beginnings of our adulthood if we're going to survive in the world so yeah i I like that they take the time to make you be a little irritated by her initially it's so funny because at the beginning we're in this story of her and she's mm. sad because she's going through, she's leaving town. That's another, right. it's transition. It's totally understandable too. Of course. I want to make sure. Well, that, it, yeah. but, but what's so interesting because Miyazaki is all about hard work. That is his, he, he doesn't, he is not a like, let's deal with our feelings and be sensitive to each other. Kind. He's like, human should work. And so that's what he does with her is right. that she has to go through stuff that are hard it's not that she has to be taken care of because of the difficult transition that she's making. It's no, you have to do hard stuff. Right. Right. And then you'll become stronger and essentially the hero of your own story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But right now we're going to go to the bathhouse and for some reason she has to hold her breath or everyone will see her. And just her walking across that bridge, mm -hmm. holding her breath, and you know she's not going to make it. Of course. Said, There's this frog. She breathes, and then everyone sees that there's a human. And then he gives her extremely specific instructions of what she has to do, that she has to escape, and that now that people can see her, she has to get a job, or someone yep. called Yubaba is going to kill her. Right, right. Or turn her into a pig. And there's little markers here, right? Because he gives her this food to eat, so he's aware of the world. He uses magic on the frog to essentially stun the frog in midair, so she, he can help her escape out the back door through the little door. And then, like you said, it gives her the instructions so she can function in this world. So we find out later who Haku is, but clearly, even though Haku's forgotten his name, he still has the instinctual ability to use certain powers of his or certain magic right. of his. Um, and certainly, Yubaba uses him later for a number of things and has been using him for a while, apparently, and which we find out in the movie. But yeah, he has this thing. I love that. They lay the groundwork for this for so good. So yeah. And the mission he sends her on is to go find Kamaji, the, the boiler man, and get a job from her, from him. And he gives her all the instructions and says, you cannot take no for an answer. Whatever you do, you have to get a job or you're it's not going to, or Yubaba's going to hurt you. Yeah, yeah. And what's weird to me, and it's, it's, it's funny, it reminds me of like, Yoda uh, giving instructions to Luke yeah. and saying, you absolutely have to do this. It ends up, no, we're going to do something completely different. It's going to end up being fine, you know? Right. And she crawls away, hiding on the bridge. All the, all the shots are really just cool. I love the one. There's one where you could see the people on the bridge on, on one side, mm. and then she's climbing along this ledge on the side of the building. Yeah. Um, and contrasting this to how she behaves later on in the film She's so tentative. She's so scared. Mm -hmm. right. She has to go down these steep stairs on her butt one at a time. And later on in the movie, she's going to be a full-on adventurer, you yeah. know? Yeah. And the stairs break, and she falls, and she goes down to a door, and she heads inside. And we see, the first thing we see is a bunch of steam and these little fuzzballs with legs, which are some of my favorite creatures. <laughs> um, these are apparently, they were first introduced in My Neighbor Totoro, mm. these, these kinds of designs. And then we see uh, Kamaji for the first time. Yeah. Kamaji. What a great design he is. Yeah. Real interesting with the, it's like a uh, steampunk, all of us, almost a steampunk yeah. design with those goggles and the big fluffy mustache, but the bald head and the multiple hands and everything that's going on. And you hear the sounds, you know, this kind of this factory sounds of what he's doing, you know, which I think is really cool and interesting. Again, you take, he takes the time to, flesh out the world but also flesh out the rooms before he dives into conversations too much he wants you to really grasp what is happening because just like he's talking about nature or whatever he wants you as the viewer to take a moment to see and grasp what is happening in front of your eyes before the action goes forward so kind of practicing what he preaches well, and the weird thing about his character, and I, I, I just love the design too, and I love the those long arms that just seem to be able to extend forever yeah. are so cool. But there's also a sense, I would say, for me, I'm curious what your feelings are, that he is A, a powerful character, a powerful spirit, creature, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And B, a slave. That's how I see him. Interesting. Or trapped in this world. Yeah. I, yeah, well, certainly a worker who is doing what he's doing and has to hit the quotas and all of that. So basically um, maybe a commentary on the industrialism of uh, 
Japanese business. You know, the idea of having someone all the way down at the bottom who's doing all these things and using all these and then having workers work for him to do these things as well. So I don't know if slave came to me, so, but I, you know, I respect your uh, uh, analysis of that. But for me, it was more, it's a matter of, saw. I saw a guy who has been working there all his life, you know, kind of this dead yeah. end job. You know? I think, I think slave is too strong a word. I mm. think the, 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 the worker, the trapped worker is better. Mm. And it's funny what you said about the industrialism, because I, I have another Miyazaki quote. Mm. He was talking about engineers and engineers who work really, really hard to build something yeah. that they think is going to make the world better. And he says, no matter what you do, everything you build is turned into tools used by industrial civilization <laughs> and that you become a tool used by industrial civilization. Yes, yes, yes. Um, she's asking him for a job and he's refusing. I've got all the workers I need. And now these little footballs come out carrying their coal and she's trying not to, you know, step on any of them. Right. And, and I love that one of them essentially drops its coal on its head yeah. and is crushed. And she picks it up, which is really heavy. And she has a hard time lifting it. And then he just pops back to life and she doesn't know what to do with this big piece of coal she's got. Yeah. And Kamaji says, finish what you started. Finish what you started. Interesting. It kind of yep. foreshadowing for what's coming in the movie. And then so she carries this coal over to the, you know, the furnace. And it's hard, it's obviously difficult. And then what happens to all the other sitballs? They drop their own coal. Cause like, oh, we got a we got a worker. We could have someone else do our work for us. Yeah. And Kamachi says, If they don't work, the spell wears off and they turn back to soot. So there's no job for her here. Right. And then we meet the next of our important characters, which is Lin comes in with a meal for Kamaji. Mm -hmm. And she looks almost human. Yes. Yeah. And immediately Kamaji describes Chihira as his granddaughter. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting. It kind of put giving her a little bit of a shield, you know, because clearly her insistence to keep working, she's not going to quit, just like Haku told her not to quit, you know, insisting that she works, but grudgingly gets him, gets uh, her his respect. And so he does that to kind of cover for her and smooth the path a little bit for her out of respect for the fact that she lifted that rock up maybe and wants to be a part of this world in some way. Maybe he was once a human two who has forgotten his name by now and somehow by evolution evolved and had four arms i don't know i'm just throwing it out there what i find interesting is that haku's interpretation of reality mm. isn't actually 100 percent correct mm. you know what i mean like there the things are not actually going to go the way that haku said that they would go right 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 yeah. um because kamaji essentially bribes lin with like a roasted newt or something yeah. to take uh, to take Chihar Chihira to uh, Yubaba. Yeah. Um, I love the little details like the shoes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, and the footballs, they're just all, they're all so lovingly done. But again, right? The symbolism, right? We find out later on in the movie, the first interaction she has with Haku was when she was a child and it was her shoe following oh. the shoe. That was what led her to shallow water to save herself from being drowned in the, the river. And here, the shoes being taken off and moved away is the beginning of this whole process with her and Yubaba and all of this and, and uh, you know, transitioning her into this world. So when she gets her shoes back is when she's safe again 
um, on the other side of the tunnel, or what are they, as they're about to go into the tunnel with the parents. So it's kind of little things that are connected, you know, as you're watching it. That, that, that's a great point. And there's, there's something about her identity because we're going to switch from the Western clothes to the clothes of the bathhouse. Yes. Right. Again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so her shoes are somehow connected to that idea and mm-hmm. we, she loses her name. Right. You know, which we'll find out soon. Yeah. Yeah. All of these things are, I think are connected. Um, and she thanks Kamaji. And now Lynn is going to take her up to Yubaba who lives at the top floor of the bathhouse. And we get just this great journey <laughs> from the bottom up, including meeting this guy that I always just thought of like this weird walrus guy. Yeah. yeah. But he's, he's, that's the radish spirit. Yeah. Huge character, amazing design that they get trapped in an elevator with. <laughs> It, it's funny. I could describe all of this stuff. It's all just, it, 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 it's stupid for me to describe it because you have to just watch it yeah, because right. of the visuals of it. But the journey going up through the elevators and meeting the the foreman who is a, a, a part of the frog species and arguing as they're looking for the human, all that stuff is fun. Yeah. And we finally make it up to this big doorway and she starts to go in and the knocker, which is a face says, aren't you even going to knock? <laughs> Which I think is just a great little detail. And now we're going to meet Yubaba. What do you think of this design? I think it's my favorite design of the movie. It is so unsettling, yet gorgeous in some way because of the design. Her face is so big and the wrinkles are so pronounced and the eyes are so large and the nose is so prominent and the hair is so perfectly kept together. And then the dress is so blue and vibrant. So to me, this is one of those unsettling designs, yet you can't take your eyes off it because it is so well animated and it owns every room it's in when it's in it. And when it gets close to any character, you really feel the menace because of the size of the designs of Yubaba. So I thought they did a fantastic job. Uh, designing her um, in the movie and her sister, of course, in the movie. It's totally crazy. I, I, I agree with you. Like it is such a wacky design. And what's so it's things like this that like, it's not that I don't think I'm a creative person, but yeah. I'm nowhere near I, like my brain doesn't the, the kind of brain that can imagine you Baba. Yeah. It's just mind boggling to me, yeah. you know, agreed yeah. because my brain doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then we also see these three heads that are bouncing around. Um, and these are, uh, probably, these are called, uh, Kashira and they're probably based on, uh, drama dolls, which were charms used to protect children from diseases in the 1600s. They were, they believed that there was a demon that caused smallpox and they would give these to children or put them in child's beds in order to protect them from smallpox in the 1600s in Japan. Wow. She's, uh, Yubaba's working and Chihiro asked for a job. Right. And she zips her mouth shut with her magic because Yubaba is a witch. Yeah. And she definitely does not want to give her a job. Yeah. She says, Like your parents who gobbled up the food of the spirits like pigs, they got what they deserved. Oof. Yep. So she is the one that turned her parents into pigs. Yeah. Look, every director puts themselves in their movie, <laughs> right? You know, and certainly. You could argue that there are shades of Miyazaki in Yababa because she is so harsh. And certainly, as you said, uh, as Miyazaki does in his movies, presenting a harsher world, 
she's judgmental. She's not willing to create space initially um, and harsh in terms of her language. Um, and so this exchange is so interesting because, of course, the symbolism here, a, a, a child wanting to grow up or be a part of the adult world, adults always re- re- resist that, push it back down, tell them no. So her asking for work is kind of symbolic of, of a child wanting to be included, mm. uh, getting to that point where they want to be a part of the conversation at the adult table, where they want to have an opinion. Now, of course, adults are going to be like, oh, what's a 10-year-old got to say? What's an 11-year-old got to say? But we forget that we do remember those moments. We do. Yeah. because We've gone through that rite of passage ourselves. But we forget in those moments sometimes when we're telling a 10-year-old or 11-year-old, like, you don't know what you're talking about or what could you possibly have to say about this? You haven't lived your life at all. But these are the beginnings of where they're starting to figure out their voice on certain things. And so being told, no, there's no work, there's no work, there's no work, both by Kamaji and then by Yababa, but she has to insist because she wants to be a part of this world. And so we do eventually relent in situations well, like that. And, you know, talk about, you know, you asked if Miyazaki's being too cruel. Yeah. You know, Yubaba is the symbol of that in a lot of ways because right. she says, why in the world do you think I should give you a job? Anyone can see you're a lazy, spoiled crybaby and you have no manners. Yeah. I mean, that's... <laughs> Do you think he's making a commentary on the people who work for him? Do you think he's making a little bit of why should I hire you as an animator when you're from that uh, new school of doing things? I want old school people of doing things. You're spoiled. You're young. But what do you know? You know, so. So I was going to save this story for later, but it applies so much to to what you're asking. (laughs) Because one of the things that happened a lot in these behind the scenes is Miyazaki is talking to these young people. Mm Mm-hmm. And particularly there's one of the, there was a documentary I watched of him after he retired where he was unretiring, which he's unretired multiple times because he can't stop working. And he's going to do a computer animated short, which he hasn't worked with CG very much, which he did. He created, this is like 2014 or something like that. Okay. Um, And he's talking to these computer people and he's getting so frustrated because all they know is computer things. Like they don't know the real world. And the same is happening in Spirited Away because he's talking to all these people about how animals move, how trees move, how these things happen. And none of them have been in the natural world. And so he's getting increasingly frustrated. And there's this moment where they're talking about the scene later on, which we'll get to where um, she has to give Haku the pill because he's sick as the dragon. And she's trying to get the thing in his mouth. And he's saying, well, uh, how many of you have had a dog? And none of the staff, have, and none of them have owned a dog. And he goes, well, how many of you have played with a dog? None of them. He's like, well, how many of you have done that? Nobody. And he's like, well, you know how you give a dog a pill? And he's describing how you do it, which is true. You know, you'd stick your hand down their throat, essentially. Yeah. And then you clap your hands around their their muzzle in order to keep it uh, closed and force them to swallow. And they're all staring at him, just totally clueless. <laughs> and then he sends them all to a, a, a veterinary office so that they can play with dogs and watch a pill being given and that you know, and, and learn and then if you watch that scene with Haku you could see the research there but for him right. but for Miyazaki's like oh you don't live in the real world you live in like the fake world yeah. and don't understand anything about reality you know <laughs> needless to say uh, she's not getting anywhere and getting a job until we start to hear these loud noises because we've woken the baby yeah the baby what do you think of the baby <laughs> Baby is interesting, right? I mean, it's what is the baby? Um, what does it symbolize? Why does she have a baby at 
such a what you would perceive perceive to be an advanced age. Um, but it's interesting. Is the baby Japan? Is the baby um, symbolic of a new way of thinking? Is the baby being protected uh, because it must have? Or is the baby a symbolism of what would happen to Japan if it was if it gave in to the full Western influence? Because you see, she is Western influence, right? Everyone else at the bathhouse is dressed in the traditional Japanese old Jap- right. old school Japanese garb. She is the one that's wearing this kind of eighteen nineties nineteen hundreds kind of uh, dress there from that time in westerns or whatever. And you see the hair is even done in the same way. She's obsessed with the jewels. Her uh, lair is full of these massively large carpets, rich and lush, all these things that symbolize um, Western or or consumerism um, and richness and wealth. And the baby is gluttonous and large. And so certainly maybe there's a a symbol of that. She's trying to protect it, but the baby destroys things and pushes things and, you know, knocks things over uh, and is uh, childish. But that's what's going to happen to Japan if it, uh, it indulges in it and, and becomes more westernized as opposed to less. It'll become this kind of bloated thing that wants to destroy everything in its path. Now, Japan, the history of Japan as a colonial power, you can argue, hey, they were doing it even when they were dressing in regular gar- in the old school garb. So it's it gets a bit muddled if you want to really break down the history of Japan to see if what Miyazaki's point of if it Miyazaki's point of view bears out, but at least in the context of the film, it seems like that's what he might be saying with the baby. So, I I, th- I want to go back to something you said. Oh yeah, that about the age of uh, Yubaba and the age of the baby, and I yeah. just suddenly went, you know what? That baby could have been a baby for fifty years, yeah, probably. Maybe. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. like. But she is keeping it a baby by yeah, overprotecting yeah. it. And the, the more she overprotects the baby, I think the bigger and more dangerous the baby becomes. Yeah. Agreed. Because this baby is dangerous. I mean, it can knock through walls and destroy all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's interesting that she just called uh, our main character a lazy, spoiled brat with no manners. Yeah. yeah. And yet but- she's infantilizing her child and overprotecting them at the same time. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on. And finally it's the getting her to keep quiet. That finally makes you Baba agree to give her a job. And this mm-hmm. contract magically appears and she signs it. And I love the moment after she signed the contract where she looks at the contract and says, so your name's Chihiro. What yeah. a pretty name. And she gestures and the words, the characters of her name fly off the page. Yeah. And Yubaba takes it, takes away her name. Yeah. And adjusts it and changes it. To, to Sen. To Sen, yeah. I think that's a great, great moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then after, who does she run into but Haku, mm-hmm. who treats her entirely differently? Totally yeah. different character. Haku, and she goes back with Lynn, who's also not being nice. Yeah. And then the moment they're alone, Lynn is suddenly nice to her again and shows real care for her. Yeah. And it seems that Chihiro, now Sen, has has the ability to win over people. Yes. Uh, we end up in her room and they're looking for some clothes for her. And she asks about Haku. And it's obvious that Lynn doesn't like Haku. Mm. And I think that Haku, when he's in the bathhouse... 
is behaving as Yubaba's person. He's pretending right. to be who he's supposed to be, which is why people are afraid of him and don't like him yeah. when deep down we think he's a good guy. Yeah. Um, by the way, one of the interesting moments is that we see Yubaba become a version of the bird, the little U bird, and that she can also fly away. Yeah. Like, yeah. Again, Miyazaki's just the, the strangeness of the world is just always fascinating to me. Right. Right. It's the middle of the night. Sen is sobbing under her covers when we hear Haku's voice, who's going to show her something. She goes down to Kamaji's space and asks for her shoes and the sitballs bring her shoes. And then she heads up the stairs, no longer scary on the stairs. Yeah. And we go outside towards the bridge and we get our first glimpse at no face. Yeah. He's the most fascinating mm. character for me in the whole movie. Yeah. Agreed. Um, beautiful one of the few i think cg shots in the movie is them going through the flowers mm. they didn't ever want cg to show off right they wanted it to do very specific things in subtle ways but not to go oh my god look at this amazing computer effect right and they head to the pig pen and he shows her mom and dad who are asleep because they ate too much yeah and are sleeping it off and he says <laughs> They don't remember being human, so look hard. It's up to you to remember which ones they are. That's a lot. Yeah. And then he he hands her her clothes, and he hands her the card from the flowers that has her name on it. Mm. And even in that moment, she had already forgotten what her name was. Yeah. And, and I love this little bit. Like, you have to hold on to your past to remember who you were, or you will forget who you are. Leaves. <laughs> You couldn't hang more of a lantern on that, Steve. And then uh, this moment, which is so surprising to me, she looks up as after Haku's left and she sees him flying because she realized that he's a dragon. Yeah. You imagine Lin doesn't like Haku because of stuff she's seen him do in the past, you know? Yeah. 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 You know, because later on in the film, he comes back with like blood in his mouth uh, and God knows the things that he's done. Um, in service of Yubaba. So maybe, maybe there's something that Lin was connected to that he destroyed or whatever. I mean, I think he has been Yubaba's henchman. Yeah. So I so, think when she needs to discipline someone, he has done it. Yeah. Because she hasn't seen this version of Haku that cares for Sen. Right. She's only seen the one that works for Yubaba. It's time to start our first day of work. And and they're out like cleaning the floors and they're doing this thing where you have a rag uh, a cloth and you are running across the floor, pushing the the thing forward to clean the floor. Yeah. I did this every night in Aikido class at our dojo. This is how we ended the class huh. was we would nice. clean the mats exactly this way. <laughs> um, wax on wax off, man. It totally was man. <laughs> and, and Sen is falling behind because she yes. just has never worked. Yeah. Um, and I learn to learn to work. Yeah. And she's dumping some water outside. It's pouring out. And there standing outside this window is No Face facing her. And she tries to talk to him. I love just the little noises that No Face makes because No Face can't talk at this point. Yeah. And she asks, you know, about him getting wet out there. And then she says, I'll leave the door open for you. And she goes inside and No Face comes into the bathhouse. Yeah. They are assigned to clean the big tub. Much to Lynn's chagrin. Yeah. Uh, and it is really, really gross. And she tells Lynn to go get an herbal token from the foreman, 
to yeah. clean it out. Uh, Sen goes to the foreman, um, and he won't give her any tokens. And then No Face gets a token for her and gives it to her. Yeah. And then should we show how this works? That you hang a token on this thing that sends yeah. it down to Kamaji. That it, you open up a trough in the wall and water pours out, and there's steaming water coming out to clean this big tub. And by the way, you know, it's so funny. I, I, it's so interesting when there are things I just didn't really think about. Which is, of course, I know that you do sound design for an animated film. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you have to do that. And so they went to a, a local hot spring and they recorded water flowing and pipes and splashing and all these things. Right. That they did. But you know what I didn't think about, which of course you have to do, is Foley. And Foley, for oh, yeah. th those people who don't know, Foley is rather than having a recording of a gunshot that I would just lay into a track, yeah. if you have footsteps, it's really hard to lay in a thousand individual footsteps one at a time. So instead, what you do is you have a guy with the right shoes on. If you have someone walking in gravel, he will walk in gravel to picture, sinking his feet up with the feet of the person in the movie. Yeah, exactly. Which is, by the way, have you ever done it? Uh, I have done. Um, I've watched it be done. I've not. I've never done it. Um, I've watched it be done. And I'm just it, amazed at the people who are great at it. You know, it is so fun. Yeah, because in a weird way, it's like acting because you kind of have yeah. to be that person. Yeah, and get into their feeling, and so you and you'll do things like if you're uh, Neo in the Matrix and you have like a leather jacket on. Well, you have to do foley for the jacket, so you move with every punch. You do that, you know. Right. Um, and what I had, this is the thing I hadn't thought about. It's like, well, if you have a whole bunch of giant mystical creatures walking around in the world, you still have to do Foley for them. <laughs> and so you have humans yes. figuring out how to walk like Radish Man or how to move like Yubaba in order to create the Foley for these characters. And so that's what they're doing is they're running around. There's a, there's a ton of interesting Foley going on in this film. And that's I hadn't really thought about. It. I like um, yeah, yeah. And as they're cleaning the bath... Up comes No Face now with a whole bunch of tokens. Yeah. And here's the thing that I think about. I think No Face's motivation is really interesting. And what I get about it so far mm -hmm. is that he really cares about Sen. He wants her to be happy. He wants to give her things, you know? Well, I think this, I think No Face sense it. No Face is kind of, how can, it's kind of like tofu. I hope I can make this correctly. <laughs> but like, um, <laughs> I kind of walk. it came into my mind and I said it. So, okay, you know, how tofu takes on the flavor of sure. whatever it's cooked with, right? And I feel like No Face is like that because later we see No Face being consumed by producing the gold and eating all this stuff and becoming this bloated thing and this wanting to have, wanting to be revered. But I think he senses a kinship with, or it senses again. I don't want to give it a, an identity. Uh, it, it senses a kinship with Chihiro with Sen um, because it is also lonely. It is also childlike. It is also uh, seeking a place to belong, and so I think that's why it feels a natural kinship with Chihiro um, and tries to connect with her multiple times. And her, just by the simple gesture of letting it into the bathhouse, is acceptance. Right. And so already No Face has a strong connection with her over everybody else because she was the first one that let him in. Because he is there on the bridge, No Face, but hasn't gone in. So who knows how long No Face has been on the bridge waiting for someone to let it in. Uh, and Chihiro was the first person who did. So – there's a natural connection, plus her loneliness and her feeling of 
needing to uh, feeling of being lost and needing to get something i think there's a connection there which is why i think he also ends up on the train with her uh, heading to yababa's sister's place i think for me mm. no face on some level is a rumination on desire like mm. there's no face makes a connection with sen on some level and and, and is given a thing which mm-hmm. is you can come in and that feels good and then it i'll i'll also use an it mm. it um doesn't want wants to give something back and so sees that sen wants a token and right. gets the token for sen which makes sen happy and so it goes i want to do more of that right. so if one token made sen happy then i'm then i can give and i felt good by giving the token to sen now a whole bunch of tokens will make sen even more happy but then Sen only didn't want a token for herself. Yeah. That's not why she wanted a token. She wanted a token because it was necessary to do this thing. Now the new tokens that have been brought, they have no value to her because she doesn't need them anymore. Right. Exactly. And so, but that feels like a rejection to no face. Yeah. Because no face wanted to feel good by giving the thing that Sen wanted. And now she doesn't want the things. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to see no face want to consume later on yeah. and want to give and fail. And it, and, it, and it goes to all the consumerism stuff is like, Oh, you have these desires, but fulfilling them actually is not going to make you feel better. Yeah. You know? And the other thing that's happening is this crazy, huge, muddy, disgusting, obviously smelly spirit is on its way to the bathhouse. <laughs> yeah. And your mama senses it. She looks out the window. She's like, what's, Something's coming through the rain. It's trying to hide something different. Something I don't understand. Something that feels yeah. uh, wrong is coming through the rain. Uh, and then we see that spirit, and it is such an incredible design as well. Right? Yeah, the mud and the smell and the stink. I mean, the swamp smell that it probably has. So yeah, it, filmmakers that can evoke other senses like mm. temperature and smell and taste and touch are amazing. And this thing stinks. You know, <laughs> and, and it comes thing, in and yeah. yeah. And Sen and Lynn are assigned the job of take care of this customer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's obviously, I love just even when, uh, Sen first sees it and her hair goes up, the thing stinks so bad, you know? But yeah. It's so cool. The design there is so cool of her like, just the plastic face that she has on yeah. the whole time trying not to insult it for its smell. Yeah. And and this is when, hey, maybe all of those tokens from No Face are going to be useful. Mm. And it gets them in the tub. It gets the water on them. And it is all just disgusting. All of the mud and guck and all the stuff that Sen is, is surrounded by. And the tub is overflowing. And Sen gets trapped underwater. And then she sees this thing sticking out of the creature's side that looks like a thorn. And she tells Yubaba, and now the whole staff comes down as we tie a rope to the store and to pull this thing out. Right. And finally, they heave and they heave, and then a bicycle comes out of this thing. And then all sorts of trash and junk and muck and disgustingness comes out until finally it's like the end of the fishing line and Sen pops out the last thing. And there's just an amazing shot of like this old man skull essentially floating out of this stink spirit, which wasn't a stink spirit at all in this last moment. And what we find out is that this was a river spirit. Yeah. That had been so polluted 
And this is one of the other Miyazaki themes, which is he's an environmentalist. Yep. You know, so. yeah. and this is the pollution of our natural world created the stink spirit. Yeah. And, um, leaves her with this little, uh, thank you. This little yep. magic. Thank you. Yeah. And now Sen is kind of a hero. Yeah. She made Yubaba a lot of money. She dealt with this extremely difficult spirit. Like this is all pretty good. Mm. Um, yeah, because she, because you got me money. I love you now. Yeah. Right. Yep. This is consistent about you, Baba. People, I know people brought up in the reviews, like she, she switches or she changes. She doesn't, she's consistent in who she is. Like, right. Uh, she loves Sen because Sen just made her a bunch of money. That's the only reason. Not because Sen is somehow grown in value by doing this. No, it's because she made her a lot of money, uh, which is why she's able to turn on her later uh, when she uh, does the stuff that she does with her sister. One of the interesting quotes from Miyazaki that I've been thinking about is he said, we're not creating characters, we're creating humans. Hmm. Wow. Which considering all the wild, you know, creatures that he creates. Sure. But Yubaba, like I've seen her written as like, she's the villain. And I'm like, I mean, she is, she does things that are villainous. You can argue she's the antagonist. I don't know if you can argue that she's the villain. Yeah, well, and she's like she's like a human, you know. Yes, she's making yep. choices out of her self interest and her personality and her desire, and they're not necessarily always that nice. Yeah, some of the hardest, some of the things that I've been kind of like coming to terms with as I've been doing is I've been growing in my analysis on things. It's like how, much, and especially because yesterday I read that fantastic as, as we're recording this, I read that uh, really engrossing Vanity Fair article about Lost and about what Carlton Cuse and uh, Lindelof pulled on that set with so many of these writers and actors and, you know, and, and your, and your initial reaction is like, okay, you know, you know, screw them. And how could they, and all of that. But then you also have to go like, well, what would I have done in that situation? Would I have been as good or worse? Have I done that? Have I been in a position of power and abused people? Have I used my station or my privilege or my status to get what I wanted done and uh, stepped on people's feelings and then later apologized, but at the time just felt the need that I had to get this thing done? Um, did I yell at family members in certain situations to get something done? You know, So you have to temper the judgment with, well, yes, it's you can finger point, but would you have done the same thing? And since she represents wealth and consumerism and the desire for these kinds of things, um, we always want to think that we are not like that. But I think a lot more of us are like that than we want to admit. And so we want to point the finger at that thing rather than maybe pointing the finger at ourselves, which I think Miyazaki is trying to make people do. Look yeah. at yourself because this is what you actually are, even though you may not want to see it. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think this is the, one of those things about getting older, hopefully, mm. and not, I remember you and I had a conversation at one point about, is everybody introspective? And I don't think everybody is. <laughs> no, I don't think everybody is. Um, but hopefully if you are a little bit introspective, you do go to a point like, oh, I didn't handle that. that yeah. Great. So, well. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, and, and it a helps you to modify your own behavior and make you maybe a little more forgiving and understanding of other people's behavior, you know, yeah. as you go. And I think it makes you a better critic too, because you can analyze the antagonist from a different place rather than just right evil person. You know, well, and it's why I mean, personally for me, I've never been interested in writing. I don't like evil people in general. Like my right. my favorite bad guys always have motivations that yeah, are interesting. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. Yeah, and she does. She does have yeah, yeah. 
I love just little things like they're back in their quarters and they turn off the lights and the change in the lighting from the mm -hmm. warm colors to the blue moonlight colors and seeing that train moving through the water and all those things that you could just look at and just the beauty of it is great. And we're back in the big tub room and no faces there. And there is an angry frog who comes in yeah. looking around and no face drops a little piece of gold and the frog starts yelling at him and he drops more gold. And now the frog pretty excited by all this gold. Yeah. No face grabs him and eats him and eats. <laughs> and, but then he takes on his voice. This is why I totally understand your tofu reference is that now he has taken on some of the character of the frog that he's consumed. Yeah. And now he, the foreman comes in and he talks to the foreman in the frog's voice and then he eats the foreman too. Yeah, because it, it like you said, it's it, it, it now wants to consume these things. It wants to try it out. It wants to see what it is. And so it's taking on these different personalities and it's getting accepted. You know, yeah. I give gold, but then it's indulging itself by eating these people, but giving gold to all these people, all of a sudden he become, it, it becomes this really revered thing because it's giving gold, because it's giving money away. It all of a sudden has some more status where nobody would open the door to it before, but now that you're giving them wealth, uh, all of a sudden, you know, you, you want, you want to revere this person, which is of course ridiculous. I mean, this sequence of the whole bathhouse waking up and all the staff running to serve this creature. Yeah. Because it's giving gold. This is where it's like, once I started thinking of this as an attack on cop capitalism and American culture and Western culture and yeah. greed, I couldn't stop. Because what's happening is that he is corrupting all of them by their desire for gold, yes. their greed. Right. And he is consuming, literally consuming them. Yes. And they don't like him. It's not like they go like, oh, what a great boss. It's like, ha, 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 we're taking all of his gold. Right. And then they are feeding him and he is growing into this huge, disgusting mass, you know, like it's it, to me, it's parallel to the to the river spirit, yeah, stink spirit, 100%, you know, 100%. of like there's all of these things that are leading to creating essentially a monster. Hmm. Um, and while this is going on, Sen has a bad dream of where she can't find her parents among the pigs, even though she has the thing from the river spirit. No face is just completely pigging out and throwing, you know, gold everywhere. I love, by the way, the song that one of the guys sings about him. Yeah. <laughs> which is great. <laughs> and then she sees the dragon and she sees these birds chasing him. Yeah. And by the way, this, I should say that the score is beautiful. This is the regular collaborator with Miyazaki, which is Joki Hisashi. Yeah. It's a great, great score. Agreed. And it's interesting, at least for me, when I'm watching Haku fly towards her with the birds following, at first it looks just playful, you know, to me. Yeah. And then there's this moment where you go, oh no, he's hurt and these birds are attacking him. And it crashes through the walls, and she tries to close the door to stop these little paper birds from coming in. And one of them gets in, and this is where we first see that Haku is bleeding and wounded, and it's really scary. Yeah. Well, and the thing, it almost feels like Haku doesn't recognize her. You know what I mean? Like, he could be right. a danger to her. Right, right. It's a wounded animal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it 
goes up and she goes to follow and uh, and that one single paper bird attaches itself to her as she climbs and now uh where before we saw her so scared going on those stairs yeah now she's out doing pretty adventurous stuff yeah 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 yeah, yeah. because she's learning how to live for other people she's learning how to care for other people right so she's willing to put herself at risk something that she was not aware of before now because Haku is in danger, she's willing to make these sacrifices and uh, to herself and her health, possibly, and her physical uh, being because he's in danger. You know, she even she climbs up that ladder and sees the bird or um, Yababa showing up in the bird form. But she wants to help uh, Haku and she's willing to go into Yababa's office without permission to try to help Haku. And she's chasing, trying to catch up to Haku. Yeah. She ends up with this big crowd where No Face is. And the foreman tries to get her out of the way. But No Face is interested in Sen and pulls out this huge pile of gold. Yeah. And the pile of gold has motivated every other spirit, creature, whatever in the bathhouse to do whatever he wanted. Yeah. And the one, it seems to, this is my interpretation. I'm curious what you think. But my interpretation is that the only person he genuinely wants to give something to is Sen. Yes. You know? And so he holds this huge pile of gold. And again, she's like, I don't need the gold. I need to go help my friend. Yeah, this is the beginning of Sen really kind of changing as a person. This scene here, and certainly much stronger later, um, she is basically saying to, you know, to him that, no, I don't have the time for this. I don't need your gold, just like I didn't need the extra uh, tokens, even though she did end up using them on the river spirit. So she kind of maybe did, but didn't know it. But in this situation, this childlike spirit is trying to give her what everybody else seems to think is worthy or of wealth or of import. And it's not what she wants. And she even says to him, you don't have anything that I want. Right. So trying to say to the spirit that, you know, you, I don't want this old, uh, this, consumerism and greed and i saw what it did to my parents and i think this right. is the beginning of her realizing this which is why she's rejecting this stuff and she's also kind of in, innately a person who doesn't want to take more than what she deserves like she didn't want more tokens for the right. bathhouse than than the one that she got she doesn't want more gold or any gold really from no face because that's not what she needs you know I, I think this is the, the like the, the key to the movie of what is it you should want, you mm -hmm. know? Right. Like, and she right. is learning like, oh, I don't want that. Like, I want my friend Haku to be okay. Yeah. That's what my, I want. My war or the wealth in this world is the relationships and the people that totally. are totally my love, my friends and family who I love. Yeah. yeah. Well, and what are, what did her parents do at the very beginning? They weren't caring or connected with her as she mm -hmm. was sad and then they forced her to go to this place, and then they totally turned their backs on their on her to yeah. consume their desires. Yep, to you have know, their food. Yeah, exactly. And it's really for me sad when she leaves No Face with these you know vultures who just are interested in him for his gold, and he doesn't know what he wants. He doesn't know how to. He doesn't know how to satisfy the desire and the pain yeah. within him. That's how I feel. And she climbs out the window and climbs up to the roof and. Uh, and her hand is bloody. I mean, she's gone through a lot of stuff. 
And, and I love just, you know, running across the pipe as it's collapsing and all this stuff. I mean, it's really exciting. Yeah. And she makes it up to a window frame and the bird, paper bird, slips inside and unlocks it for her, which I think is a lovely little detail. Yeah. Yubaba is now on the phone hearing about the horrible stuff that's going on with No Face. She sees Haku bleeding on the carpet and she tells the three heads to just get rid of him. Yeah. Yeah. And Sen ends up in the bedroom with the baby. Yeah. And the baby grabs her and won't let her and tells her to go away because the baby is afraid that she's a germ from the outside. Mm -hmm. And she has to go help her friend. He then immediately switches. The baby does from wanting to get rid of her to please stay and play with me. And threatens her by threatening to break her arm. Yeah. And threatening to cry and get Yababa's attention. Uh, but then, uh, you know, cause she's growing in, in, uh, self-confidence and belief and strength and logic. She shows the bloody hand to him and says blood and the baby freaks out and she runs away and she gets to get away. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, you know, to me, it's like, okay, we, we think we're protecting ourselves from the outside by staying inside, right. but really it's just staying inside that will make us sick. I'm not relating this to COVID or anything like that. I'm just talking about this film. Um, and uh, yeah, fear and overprotection makes you a big baby. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what this is. That's what this movie is saying to me. Yeah. And then, and there was this, another, again, the quotes from Miyazaki are really interesting. So and one of them was, a, he was talking about the movie Frozen and Let It Go. Oh. Which he hates. Of course. And what he hates, because Let It Go is all, all a song about stop trying so hard, just be yourself, right. be okay with who you are. And Miyazaki, Miyazaki said, self-satisfied people are boring. We have to push hard and surpass ourselves. You first, Miyazaki. You <laughs> first. I mean, he That's is. What I would say. I, I here's what I love is like I I actually really like Let It Go. I found it very moving in the movie when I saw it. Sure. It did get overplayed to death. Right. But but I do like the song and I think there's a time in life where that is absolutely the right thing. Yeah. And that is what you need to do. And there's a time in life where you need to work hard and surpass yourself. Yeah. Like and so it's good to have both movies for me. Mm -hmm. It's good balance. And as you said, she basically gets away from the baby. She sees Haku with the heads. They're about to like push it down a hole mm -hmm. and the baby has come out. And then we see what we think is Yubaba. Yes. I think this is such a bizarre choice. <laughs> really do? You? Okay. Well, to have that Yubaba's sister is an identical twin sister with this same crazy, crazy design, essentially wearing the same clothes. Right. Yeah. And that she immediately turns the little you bird into a tiny little bird and turns the big baby into kind of a chubby little mouse and then turns the three heads into a baby. And this is what we hear is that the reason that Haku is hurt is that he stole her golden seal. Right. And then uh, Haku wakes up and he cuts that little paper bird in half. And that causes Zaniba to split in two and disappear. Yeah. And then they get pushed down the pit. <laughs> so they're falling down the pit. She's with Haku. She, I love the little uh, every little bit with the little bird and the baby oh, mouse. Yeah. They're all great. Yeah. And then there's this as they're falling through this black space. There's this weird cut to them, where it's Haku and Chihiro in the water. Haku. And Chihiro's younger. And she's younger. And just like what's happened there? Yeah. 
And finally, we end up down in Kamaji's space. And this is this sequence we were talking about before where she decides to feed half of the things she got from the river spirit to Haku and essentially has to feed it, you know, get the pill down his throat like a dog. And it does help. And it spits some black thing out, which she steps on to destroy. And it also spits out Zaniba's solid gold monogram seal, which is the thing that Haku stole. And what we basically come up with is that maybe the only thing to do to save Haku is for her to go to Zaniba's and return the seal. There's a thing as the film goes on, especially during this near the end of the film, she is able to troubleshoot these situations. She is growing and becoming an adult, a, a young adult. She's figuring things out. She's using her logic. She's using her brains to put this together. And then she's making these strong decisions uh, and no one's going to talk her out of it. You know, whereas this was just an hour ago, a scared, timid, unsettled yeah. by the world experiencing person. Uh, now she's much more experienced and she's clear about what she wants to do. Well, and it's not just it's, it's she's going to solve two major problems, two adventures, two dangerous things mm. at the same time, because Lynn comes in and says, hey, everyone's been looking for you because no face is turned into a monster, swallowed right. three people and done all this stuff. You got to solve that problem. Um, and so she's going to a go to she's deal with no face and go to face the witch Zaniba mm-hmm. to save Haku. And I love that Kamaji has saved train tickets for 40 years or something. That is so such a sweet moment that he goes and, and pulls that out, considering Kamaji was so aloof and distant to her initially to see that he's willing to kind of give her these tickets. And again, Steve going back into the past to save the future or save the present and possibly mm. the future. Right. Yeah. And going back 40 years in the past to get those tickets in order to help her currently now in this situation. Well, and there's also this thing of, it's not like you think he's happy in his job. No, exactly. No, no. He's held on to those train tickets thinking at some point I'm going to leave. Yeah. Or, or like with Haku, he has forgotten his name for whatever reason. Those tickets have, he's been able to remember that he has those tickets. He just doesn't know why he has those tickets. Yeah. And, and as she's getting ready to go, you know, to on the train, Lynn goes, well, what about no face? And she goes, I'll take care of that right now. (laughs) She's real confident. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And she goes to no face. Um, and, and apparently Yubaba is trying to use her magic to keep him under control and failing. Yeah. This is what Yubaba wants her to do. Suck up to him and get every last speck of gold. <coughs> so again, this is so cool because Yubaba represents, as we saw her like eyeing the, di- the jewels and looking at it and all of this, she's obsessed with the wealth and the uh, luxury of that wealth buys her. Of course, her powers are not going to work on a thing that has wealthier than her. It's not going to work. So she wants to use San or Chihiro to get everything out of this thing so that she can benefit from it. So that's there's the symbolism there of it all uh, with her growing, or we're not growing, but her natural state of existence, which is to acquire as much as possible uh, at the expense of anyone so that she can have as much wealth and gold as possible. But it's an empty existence. It's yeah. an empty existence. Yeah. I am so impressed with the maturity and the calm of Sen. Yeah. Because so no face is huge, giant spider-like creature at this point. 
And she just kneels in front of him. Yeah. And while he's offering all the gold to her, she's like, no, I would like to go. And, and it's, she's almost become the parent, I think. Yeah. Because she's like, I'd like to go and you should go too. You know, Yubaba doesn't want you here. You're causing all this damage. You're hurting people. You know, it's time for you to go. Yeah. And he says, I want Sen. And again, I also think, you know, I know you and I have both been in situations where there were things that we wanted or jobs that we wanted mm. or, or people that we wanted and become unbalanced yeah. in that desire. And that's where no face is. Sure. Um, and she feeds him the other piece of this river spirit and he starts to throw up and it makes her sick and he gets angry at her. Yeah. And I, I love to you. Baba hits him at this point with a fireball and it just bounces. He's so much more powerful than she is at this right. point. Um, and there's a great chase as he chases her through the bathhouse and they end up, you know, go through the kitchen and then they end up outside and, and Lynn is in this super cool kind of barrel boat. Yeah. That she's steering with this little thing, which I just, I love all the designs and Sen goes with her mm -hmm. and no face who is shrinking and shrinking as this is happening is following them. Yeah. And they end up at the train station. Yeah, no face like regurgitating all, everything it's eaten, everything it's consumed, including the people, including the people. Yeah, and the frog, which the is frog, the last yeah. thing I think she it, it spits out before it gets to the train. I think there's a lot in that, right? This is the bloatedness of desire. If you um, cater to desire, you will be, constantly you will become this bloated thing, and the only way to uh, return back to your natural state is to get rid of the desire and the things you acquired from that desire. And it's very like Buddhist in that way, you know, like take, take away all those things that you've picked up or bought over life. Yeah. Because those are the things that are keeping you from finding your way back to your, your where you're supposed to be, this natural state of existence of peace and Zen and, and really communicating with the world and nature and all of that. So releasing all of that, releasing desire, releasing the want and the need for things, which is very Buddhist in that way so that by the end he is uh, it is much more of a um open and receiving uh being by the time they get to the train station i i love a i love the design of the train moving through the water oh yeah so great and and we get to the train station and she gets on and then no face is there looking it's so i'm saying that no face looks sad but it's just a you know a non-expressive <laughs> face and yet that's how i feel yeah and she invites him to join her on the train and the thing that i love about this is what is no face wanted throughout this whole thing is sen on some level yes yes you know and that in trying to bribe her and to to force her to love him or be around him or stay yeah. with him he it not it never never works Right, And then when he gives up all of that, when he gives up all the desire, when he gives up all the things that he's consumed and just goes back to being himself, yeah. then she invites him along with her, right. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he gets what he wants by letting go of the desire for what he wants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Um, and they head off. I love the journey and the journey in the train is so, and the, the strange shadow commuters that are on the train with her. And mm. I don't know what that means, but it's all <laughs> really interesting. And then we cut back to Haku waking up. Yeah. And talks about, he remembers hearing Sen's voice. And what uh, Kamaji says is that pure love broke Zaniba's spell. Mm -hmm. We're up with the, the pseudo baby made out of the three heads. <laughs> and it's just doing all sorts of damage. 
And then Haku shows up acting very differently around Yubaba, yeah. acting in a much harsher manner. And he says, you still haven't noticed that something precious to you has been replaced because she hasn't figured out that that ain't her baby. Right. And then we look over at the baby and the baby suddenly has a beard like the three heads and then it becomes the three heads. And that's when she finally realizes and she thinks that Haku did it. I love when like she gets really angry and her hair goes crazy and there's fire out of her mouth and all that. All that stuff is very cool. Yeah. And she says to Haku, very clever, Haku, I get it. You get my baby back to me, but it, at a price. And the price is that he makes her agree to tear up Sen's contract Yeah, if they get the baby back. The train doors open. They get out. They're on this path. Uh, again, more cute stuff with the bird and the mouse. <laughs> and we have – it's so interesting just the – here's one more little design thing. They yeah. make a lamp character that bounces to them and shows them the way. And then the lamp jumps back up onto where it, where it lives. And I was like, just, was it necessary for the movie? No. Is it a totally lovely bit of wonder? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And now we go into Zaniba's, which is the opposite of the bathhouse. Mm -hmm. Instead of being ornate, it's simple. It's in the country. It's back to nature. It's not filled with consumerism. And she goes inside, and this Zaniba is very, very different from who we met before. Yeah. And she comes and apologizes for Haku, and we talk a bit, and she says, we ask about the protective spell, and she goes, oh, I think I squashed it, which was that black thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, that wasn't the protective spell. That was the spell that Yubaba was using to control Haku. Which is why he is so defiant to her just a few sec or a few minutes ago in the movie. Because that spell is no longer inside of his body. Exactly. And one of the things I love too is that she begs her to turn the mouse and the little bird back to the baby and the you bird. And Zaniba's like, no, they that spell wore off a long time ago. They could change back if they wanted to. And they don't want to change back. Right. Because the baby got to leave the baby's room. Right. Got to be out in the world. Yeah. Is having way more fun doing this. And the and the U-Bird, I think, is now with friends rather than being the the mock-up slave of Yubaba. Yeah. yeah. You know? And we cut to them and they're like spinning a wheel because they're making something. And Zaniba tries to get her to remember where she met Haku. Yeah. That this is really, really important. And Sen is getting more and more frustrated because she can't remember. And she's really, really scared because in her mind, Haku could still be dying. Yeah. You know, she doesn't know he's okay. And they make her this purple hair tie because they've been weaving something. Yeah. She says this line that I absolutely love. It will protect you. It's made from the threads your friends wove together. Yeah. And I went, this is family. You know, this is our relationships. The friend, the threads our friends wove together. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's going to protect you in life. I think that's, I think that's as good as you can get. I agree. 100%. You know? Mm -hmm. then who shows up but haku yeah as a dragon looking totally fine they resolve the thing with zaniba who now wants her to call her granny and there's hugs and everyone is really happy and then we are flying away and then we have that image of her underwater and losing the shoe and this is where she remembers yeah. that she was a little and she tells haku i was a little girl i lost my shoe in this river in the kawaku river 
and you saved him because you are the Kawaku River. This is another river spirit. And he realizes it's true. I was the spirit of the Kawaku River. And then what we find out is that river was filled in. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's the environmental message. Exactly. Building houses over these rivers. You know, yep. it's, it's so funny we're talking about this because we just discovered yesterday, we started seeing, the, before we moved down to where we live now, it, there was a golf course here in this area of San Diego, and it was um, uh, just kind of taken down and eventually because people stopped playing. It was weird because it was like spread out over multiple complexes, really weird kind of golf course. And they took it down and they knocked it down or whatever. And now we found out because they've started to pave those areas out and take out the vegetation mm. and they're going to put up 1,200 new units or 1,200 new wow. houses. And we were just looking at it all like this is – and you know, people were protesting it, but the city council voted for it, obviously because they are probably paid off by the uh, in, uh, people who were building it. But like it is uh, a shame now that now this – what we have is a nice combination of nature and the houses and, you know, the, sure, there's consumerism out on the main road and you can get all the food and go to the store. Sure. But like back in the residential areas, it's a nice combo of uh, areas you can walk in and take in nature and it doesn't feel um, overpopulated. And now they're going to put in 1,200 new houses and it's going to be overpopulated. And so we are going to start looking at new places to move to now, unfortunately, because oh. because we love it here. But man, this too many people is just going to cause traffic problems, bring uh, bring issues, bring more crime, bring more problems. Um, you know, uh, more cars on the road, and the area is not built to consume twelve hundred new people. So, this again, as you said, the idea of knocking down nature to put up uh, these buildings because human beings need it and must have it over. Uh, respecting nature and its in its right to exist as well. So it, it's an unfortunate situation. You, you know what I was thinking about recently is that, you know, uh, I've been doing a lot of reading on the Revolutionary War and the founding Ooh. of the country. And it's like, oh, up until 1900, most people, because it was largely agrarian society, yeah. most people were connected to nature pretty much on a daily basis. Right. And now most people in the United States are protected from nature, you know, yes, right. like, and, and you have parts of like trees and stuff like that, but they were created by humans yeah. to make a park between the industrial areas, like the actual like connection to real nature. We don't really have very much yeah. and there's less and less and less. We're farther and farther from it. You know, it's unfortunate. We arrive back at the bathhouse. Yubaba is at the bridge with the pigs and the first thing is that the little bird and the baby mouse drop down and it turns back into a huge baby. <laughs> um, and Yubaba asks if they did terrible things to you. Are you tra traumatized? And it's really the opposite. Mm. And the baby, who was a whining baby before, now has its own strength and says, you got to return Chihiro and her parents to the human world. Yeah. Because she resists it. She doesn't. She wants to be evil towards uh Chihiro, but the baby, but Bo, I think is the baby's name. Uh, Bo says, uh, no, we're not going to do that. You've got to be fair. And then, and then she's like, no, but there's rules to the world and all this kind of stuff. But you know, um, it's Chihiro who steps forward, even though everyone's making the case and she's even getting booed. Like she's some kind yeah. of, uh, you know, it's a, it's a team or something like that. She gets booed from the stands. Um, but Chihiro's the one that steps forward. And of course, again, crossing the bridge, she's yep. crossing this bridge. So the symbolism is to say, whatever your test is, I'm ready for it now. So bring it on. 
And she, I love that. You know, she, I think she's achieved like superhero levels of strength and courage mm-hmm. at this point. Which is what it must feel like for a young child to kind of open the doors to adulthood, feeling that power a little bit. Yeah. And, and even Yubaba has to respect her courage at this moment. And we walk over to the pigs and the test is, tell me which one is your mother and father and you can go. And everyone's watching and there's a long build. And then she says, There must be a mistake. None of these pigs is my mom or dad. And we basically get a, is that your final answer? (laughs) <laughs> says yeah and the contract explodes and the pigs turn into staff members and everybody cheers and she has won yeah and they go back across the bridge and she goes with haku who tells her her mom and dad will be waiting for her on the other side of the river and he goes i can't go any farther and we have a wonderful goodbye between the two of them the score is really good here man the it score really is it's a fantastic cue here um, and she runs down the hill and she catches up to her parents who scold her for falling behind. Yeah. And, and this is one of those movies where I go, well, what exactly happened? You know, <laughs> and we're, we can ever really know. I think it's really interesting, by the way, as they go back through the tunnel that we have the same line from mom where she says, Chihiro, don't cling to me like that. You'll make me trip. Yeah. Which makes me go, I don't even know what I'm supposed to think by the that same moment happening when they're going back and they're going forward. Yeah. Well, I think it comes from a different place. Whereas before she was clinging to her mom because she was scared of the world, mm. didn't want to break away. This time she's clinging to her mom because she appreciates and loves her mom and missed her mom. So she's. it's more about the relation and understanding and appreciating the relationship now versus at the beginning uh, using her as a shield from the world, you know? And they come out of the tunnel, and there is the car, covered in leaves and <laughs> apparently dusty inside. How long were they gone? I, I don't know, but they clearly don't remember because they yeah. think it's a joke or someone pulled a joke on them. Yeah, because I go like, so did the movers show up and move? Has it been it, has it been weeks? Like, has it been? Oh yeah, right, exactly. Is all their stuff already? Because I mean, remember, they had the key. That's what he said at the beginning of the film. They had the key so they could set it all up themselves uh, to move their stuff in there. So. You're right. Did they wait for the tip? How long has it been? Yeah. Um, um, also, I think there's a little bit of symbolism here that he's finally noticing nature, that there's leaves, oh. there's dust inside of the car, all those kinds of things. You're finally paying attention a little bit to nature. Um, I love the last line, which is that they ask her, we go back to the new school and the new house and everything. And they say, you know, it is a bit scary. And Jiro says, I think I can handle it. <laughs> and i'm like you bet your ass you can handle it yeah, exactly exactly so yeah um and the credits roll over with uh with a beautiful song as we're looking at the train station and the abandoned park and by the way the theme song is written by a woman who was basically a miyazaki fan and wrote him a fan letter which he wrote back to and she said oh i'm a musician can i send you my cd and he said, sure, and then and listened to it. And then years later, as he's working on Spirited Away, he remembered it and started listening to this song while he was drawing and had her come in and re-record it for, with her uh, lyre, which is what she plays, and came yeah. in and re-recorded it. And that's what plays over the credits. That's awesome. Isn't it? That is so cool. Wow. Yeah. Um, it was uh, had a $15 million budget. It earned over $300 million worldwide. Wow. Uh, it won Best a- uh, Animated Feature at the Academy Awards. Yeah. 
Miyazaki refused to attend the ceremony because he was uh, angry about the war in Iraq. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So right. he protested by not going to the ceremony. Okay. And that is everything I have about Spirited Away. Do you have final thoughts? Yeah. Um, I think this is a a fan, a, just a beautiful film in so many ways in the topics and the themes that it's discussing in the animation styles, uh, in the journey that we go on in the performances, the vocal performances from every, from the English version and from the Japanese, because I, I watched certain scenes in the English version to see if they were capturing the same kind of emotions that were captured by the original Japanese actors. And I thought they were pretty comparable. And, so overall, just an incredibly fascinating and brilliant and charming journey and um, one that has the horror aspects to it all because that's what happens too. Once you open the door to walking into adulthood, you are going to re-experience some horror stuff in your life that you never thought exist or you never knew existed. And it's how you navigate that, incorporate that into your world that uh, uh, is important to learn from. And so I think that kind of comes through as you're watching this. So there's so much to pick up and take. And then the artistry, Steve, as we've talked about throughout this whole episode, the artistry here from the animators of Miyazaki having the visions of all of this stuff, is just incredible. It's a world that is full of so many different interesting and unique characters. And they feel lived in and fleshed out as opposed to just additions or just things to have around. They all have their own kind of status in the world and i appreciate that as we're watching it so there's so much to take from it with every watch um and it is one of these just um fascinating films that um you can't forget the first time you watch it and every time you do watch it you find yourself drawn to different aspects of the film which i think is good good to say about a film like this i i i'm trying to think of how i want to say this so when you set out to tell a story or to make a movie, you have a sense of what you want your audience to experience and to feel as you're making the thing. Yeah. You know, like you go like, yeah, I want, this is a joke. I want you to laugh at this moment. I want right. you to feel for this character. I want you to learn this piece of information at this time. I want you to be thrilled here, scared here. I'm going to jump scare you there. I'm going to do, you know, and that's what you're doing because you're, because we are manipulators. Like that's the job. But I also think that with this movie in particular, you, I don't think there is a rule about what you're supposed to get out of this. Yeah. That's you know fair. what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think if you watch this movie and you see none of the themes that John and I have been talking about for the last two hours and you let it wash over you and just experience kind of the beauty of it. Yeah. That's totally great. So, and if you watch this movie as sort of a kid would watch the movie as a great adventure and it's really fun and you enjoy the wacky characters and you enjoy the cool designs, that's great. Yeah. And if you see it as a, you know, a rumination on nature or on commercialism or on desire or on anything else, that's great too. Yeah. And if you come up with a whole bunch of ideas that never even occurred to either John or I, that's awesome too. Because <laughs> it's like, it's a movie that can kind of hold all that stuff yeah. or whole, or it could just be a beautiful visuals and sound that kind of rolls over you. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. Like, and I wouldn't normally say that. That's not what I would say about a lot of other films, you know, but this one I definitely do. Um, so that's what we think of Spirit Away. Of course, we'd obviously love to hear your thoughts because as I just said, like there, you could have entirely different reactions. <laughs> you can visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. You can find us on Twitter at Cine underscore files, Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast podcasts on youtube on spotify on stitcher if you're on youtube 
please make sure to hit those like buttons and leave a comment. If you're on Apple Podcasts, we'd love to get your reviews. That would be fantastic. If you want to buy or stream Spirited Away along with every other movie we've ever reviewed, that's at cinephiles.net. And if you want to support the show, well, you would be our new best friend by going to patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where we are literally days away from rolling out a whole bunch of new tiers and a new way of doing everything which we're going to announce and if you want to reach me it's sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram and enterprise incidents for all your star trek needs john how would people find you you can always find me at the roca says uh, on twitter and instagram the outlaw nation on twitch my youtube channel youtube.com slash john roca says we got shows like the hot mic the geek buddies and uh um uh, jedi way and all kinds of stuff my reviews and reactions and you can listen to the other podcasts that i have as I mentioned, the hot mic and the geek buddies out there for you all to enjoy as well. And I think that's it for this week. We'll see you next time on The Cinephiles for another great film. <laughs>